I've learned is everything that I've done has just kind of been grooming me for what I would do next. And I just have come to rely upon that, as scary as that is. I'm Kevin Jorgensen, and this is the Freedom to Focus podcast presented by Sterling Rope. Let's record. Okay, we're rolling. All right, let's do this. Today we're talking to Darren Jeffrey. He's known for a lot of things, but most likely you'll recognize his work from shows like The Amazing Race or American Ninja Warrior. He founded a production company that makes the crazy stunt sets for shows like that. But what's most interesting about Darren is how he got into that line of work. It's completely random, like the wind just blew him there by way of several different lives. The more I climb, the more it serves as a lens through which I understand the world. I think that's what happens to anyone who sort of follows their bliss and follows their thing and spends enough time to actually get totally immersed into it. And one of the things that occurs to me is that in climbing, you have people who learn the sport, they get all the right equipment, they ask where the climbing is good, and they go there. They see the routes already laid out in the guidebook, and they tie in and they climb those routes. And they do that every single time they go climbing. And that's the experience that they're looking for. But there are other climbers that don't use the same routes. They don't follow the lines that are already there. They don't do all the research and the gear, best practice. They just go to the place that calls to them and figure out a way to get to the top. They kind of plot their own path. Darren definitely falls into this category. It's clear from the stories that he tells that he moves through the world, not impulsively, but guided by some kind of inner compass that he trusts and he knows is right. Joseph Campbell, who is maybe the foremost scholar on the world mythology and religion, called it following your bliss. And I have a firm belief in this now, uh, not only in terms of my own experience, but in uh, knowing about the experiences of other people. When you follow your bliss, and by bliss I mean the deep sense of being in it and doing what the push is out of your own existence, you follow that and doors will open where there would, you would not have thought there were going to be doors and where there wouldn't be a door for anybody else. And there's something about the integrity of a life and the world moves in and, and helps. Darren definitely follows his bliss. He's always finding ways to reinvent himself and to set new routes for others to follow. Darren's a big wall climber, canyoneering guide, wildland firefighter, concert pianist, and philanthropist. He does training for special ops units of the military. He spearheaded one of the largest programs for the Girl Scouts of America, creating opportunities for young women to go outside on crazy adventures. He's also worked with Google engineers to develop robotic self-learning obstacle courses. That's crazy. I don't even know what that is. And now Darren is the chief visionary officer at Alpine Training Services. ATS is a company he founded back in 1999 as an outdoor adventure company. But due in part to Darren's knack for seeing opportunity for what's in front of him, ATS has evolved. It's evolved from an outdoor adventure company into now a full-scale production service for the specialty entertainment industry. Oddly enough, it was in this world, this TV show world, that Darren and I met back in 2007 on a show for VH1. 
Here's here's how I remember this experience. You'll have to tell me how you remember it. But I got a call from Nancy Pritchard, who was working for 510 at the time. And she's like, hey, I've got this gig for you down in L.A. Like, you're going to help rig some ropes for something. And I was like, rig some ropes for something? Okay, cool. And then I show up at Malibu State Park, and it's like 102. And we meet on the top of some like 30 foot top rope cliff and it becomes clear right away that I'm not going to be rigging any ropes in fact I'm going to be on camera for some reality show which I had no idea was happening and for the next two hours it was probably one of the most embarrassing experiences of my life (laughs) (laughs) top roping in a in a like a wife beater tank top and posing down for I think it was like a photography reality show yeah. where you guys like lowered these poor souls off the top of a cliff and they just spun around in space like a top desperately trying to take photos. Do you remember this? <laughs> you bet. It was, it was the, the call was, hey, we need some young guy who can down climb 512 <laughs> <laughs> and, and kind of do it to the whim of a producer and on a, you know, for a reality TV thing, you know, real super small budget. Okay. Let's see. That show was called the shot and it was on VH one. There you are. You nailed it. I'm Googling it right now and I'm going to see. Oh, oh God. Pretty, I have to, yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. The shot TV series. Here we are. IMDB, a reality series that pits a group of promising photographers against one another. Still, that's pretty funny, man. <laughs> And when I, when I saw you guys banging out the Dawn Wall, I was just remembering Malibu Creek State Park. <laughs> I owe it all to the, the top rope training at Malibu. It gave me the no, basis man, of endurance all. that I needed and staying cool under... Actually, I don't even know. <laughs> so, Darren, let's let's go back in time. I want to... I definitely... I'm so curious what led up to us meeting at that cliff in Malibu when I was 23 and then what you've been up to since then. But let's start with how you got into climbing. Basically just see that video, that Van Halen video where he's, he's doing this nice big pendulum swing in Yosemite somewhere. Where Eddie, I think it's Eddie Van Halen running back and forth. I forget, I forget the name of the song right off the top of my head. He's talking about Just Like Paradise by David Lee Roth. You can find it on YouTube. But that I thought looked pretty fun. And I got on this cross-country running team uh, at my high school, and we we would take off into the orange groves, and I would just end up being the last guy in the line. And three-quarters of the way through the run, I'd peel off into the grove, and I'd hang out under a tree and eat oranges. One day I noticed there's a windmill with a ladder going up the side of it, and I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna climb that. So I went over there and climbed it, and as soon as I got up above the tree lines, I realized, man, I got a, I'm a little bit gripped. You know, I started realizing that there was a, I didn't top out on the ladder that day. I can and made just like two or three more attempts uh, over the weeks to come. Finally topped out on this ladder, and I was really perplexed that, you know, the sphere of heights climbing a ladder, but every single move was redundant. It was the same, it was, you know, reasonably safe. It has to be mental, it can't be physical, and, and that kind of started pulling me into what climbing um, you know, did for me and became for me. But then ultimately, you know, finding a cliff one day that had bolts in it, and didn't see a single climber around it, and I thought, oh, the government 
put these bolts in the rocks so people can climb here. <laughs> so I came back with like 40 feet of manila rope and a waist belt from a, jo- a, hard, a construction site to, and stole two steel carabiners from a hardware store. I, so I tie the rope into my harness, right? And then I come out. He's going to tell me how he scaled this thing with just a regular rope and like a belt from a construction site in great detail here. But just suffice it to say, it's not the recommended approach. But I thought I had it whipped. I got, and no one saw me. And I got to the ground and a soul saw me. Nobody's out climbing. Right. Then I came back to that same cliff, like whatever, shortly thereafter. But it was a weekend. And I was going to do this Van Halen thing off some boulders I saw off to the side. I came around the corner and the cliffs got climbers all over. I'm like, oh shit, professionals are here. Uh, I better, I better lay low. <laughs> <laughs> but did you like see their method and have like an aha moment? You watch their their technique and you're like, oh, that's how it goes. I seen you should should certainly have a partner. Um. And your partner's definitely got to run that rope through his harness somehow, but I never got close enough to investigate it. So the bottom line is I went and set up my little Van Halen pendulum swing kind of off to the side, and I, as I was setting it up, I realized, hey, I might end up putting on a show for these guys, kind of show them what's going on. And a lot of them are wearing the classic standex, you know, multicolored Euro standex. Guys are climbing. Oh, they're serious. Running with EB sticky rubber shoes back then, the high tops, uh, some of, so, you know, real colorful outfits. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to put on a show for these cats. And uh, I do it. I start running back and forth. And this guy free solos over to me, and he's like, hey, bro, you got to stop that because your boulder's moving, your rope's getting chewed up, and you're not even clipped in. You're just hanging on to your rope. <laughs> And I'm going, yeah, I'm hanging on good, man. This is a must-not-fall scenario, bro. <laughs> oh, my God. So this guy ends up being my mentor, and he taught me a few things about climbing. Put me in my first real pair of shoes, got me on a stretchy rope, kind of got me pointed in a more logical direction. This is what I'm talking about. He sees David Lee Ross swinging around at Yosemite, thinks, that looks cool goes and tries to figure it out and ends up hooking up with his mentor figure. It wasn't something he planned out or a goal. It's just like the wind blew him there. So rolling the clocks forward, I'm climbing a bunch. I've got a partner. I've got a nice rack. I'm up in Idlewild. Climbing on Lily Rock. It's a thousand feet of granite. You can get on hard stuff or easy stuff. Make it up as you go. Um, and basically have kind of upped my climbing game, wanting to start looking at big walls and stumbling in design. I was like, this is a Mecca. I figured that's a much better place to solo big walls than in Yosemite because you have all you have these direct head wall starts in Zion and these super short approaches. So right. I, I don't like hiking because <laughs> I'm doing that with the Forest Service. So speaking of doing a bunch of hiking for the Forest Service, why did you choose to become a wildland firefighter what was the inspiration there one of my climbing partners dad was a division chief for the forest service um, up in idlewild where i'd live and he had always had a liking for me and we would spend time together even when his son was off doing other things like i like it we hung out a lot at the time i was doing some preventative maintenance um heavy equipment repair at uh, united rentals up palm springs and i got the phone call that 
um, you know, there was a position for me in the Forest Service, and so I went up and started that career. Wow, crazy. Do you ever have any close calls with that, that line of work? or? It, um, yeah, close calls, injuries, running across death, um, dealing with, you know, kind of hopeless scopes of work, you know, when you see the fire just taking off again and, and you know, ruining all the work you did all night, communities burning down being destruction, watching humanity come together. It was a very heroic position. My parents finally had something to brag about. I wasn't just a construction worker. You know, on a hotshot crew, it's it's the work is considered really the hardest. That's where the heavy lifting goes on when the heavy when the wildland fires are going. Um and, and you know that the camaraderie and the teamwork that developed there is really equivalent to what teams, uh, special operation teams, the camaraderie that's developed, um, you know, you talk about the brotherhood or, or the, you know, the, the camaraderie of the team, you know, so between seeing the camaraderie and experiencing the brotherhood and also going to the climbing cliffs and, and feeling that camaraderie and, and, the, and, and, you know, the focus and attention when somebody's sending up, you know, a route and everybody's kind of watching and cheering them on, that's not a very rep, those two events are not very replicatable in other places. Fighting and working hard in combat, pulling together during tragedy, that's that's a camaraderie that's worth speaking of. Also, being a member of a small group of climbers at the cliff who are all just kind of in it for one, you know that you know what I'm talking about, that camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Now I've been exposed at a very young age to both of those things. And I'm ready to leave the Forest Service and start my own business at the age of 29. I met the owner of Zion Adventure Company, Jonathan Zambella, and he really coached me and inspired me to to do that, to get into um, a, a position of becoming a business owner. So with the guidance of Jonathan Zambella, Darren founded Alpine Training Services in 1999. And ATS started out as an outdoor adventure company in hopes of bolstering adventure tourism in and around Zion. Through this venture, Darren and Jonathan helped pioneer a sport that opened up the subterranean world to all kinds of adventures. So for those of you that don't know Darren, you're one of the pioneers of canyoneering. Yeah, in a lot of sense, we've developed a lot of product for the sport, and then also, personally, we've established a lot of routes that were unestablished prior to us coming through. Wow. So when did you first discover canyoneering, and how did that timeline sync up with the creation of Alpine Training Services? Right. So, hanging out in Zion, uh, me and my buddies who were climbing in Utah at the time, we took a day off and went and ran Pine Creek, which... Again, this is nobody doing this in the late 90s. And so we just kind of wandered through there. It was a spectacular adventure and a real, like, cool break from the standard ass-kicking wall climbing that we were doing. You know, wow, on a hot day, this could be really fun. You know? So anyhow, meeting Jonathan, his business was starting to grow, and my company was designed to support design adventure company business-wise. So we worked together. I'd be a subcontractor. And then in the process, I ended up pulling my own special use permit in, in southern Utah. And then I went and pulled a permit for the Angeles National Forest in California. But we're the first and only company to have a, a guiding permit uh, in the Angeles National Forest, which also has a lot of canyon routes that are uh, very exciting. So let me ask you this. I've, I've never done any kind of canyoneering 
before. You know, I'm used to going up, not down. Can you try to walk someone through what a first descent of a canyon is like who hasn't done that before? Certainly. And then I'll just take it to where our wheelhouse is and we'll add the moving water. So, Ugh. you know, it's safe to say in the southwest desert, most stream beds have been explored from top to bottom one way or another for gold or minerals or whatever. So not a lot of first descents around. People have been in and out of them, but there are places in there that you wouldn't survive getting out of or into without rope. So being at the top of a stream that's flowing water that you know is going to get narrow in places, and if it gets too narrow based on the water flow, it could be deadly and force us into some really wacky workaround to, to get past that obstacle. We'll be standing at the top of the pour over, establish an anchor, get a rope set, start rappelling to get people in gear rappelling down that line, swimming across the pool at the bottom and then pushing forward to see what the next drop is gonna look like, or swim or down climb or whatever the obstacle is. Meanwhile, the two or three people in the back are finishing that first rappel and would essentially be retrieving their ropes similar to how a climber would wrap, wrap it off of a, a pitch. Yeah. Pulling one side, the other side's coming up. So we're retrieving our ropes as we go, so we would have no known way of escape at that point. So, <laughs> you know, that that gets you into the situation of, hey, now we're talking about the, the quality of our team, the quality of our gear, and, you know, our, the, our assessment of the terrain ahead and, and some of the scouting that we should have done uh, to, to guarantee us an exit. So usually we'll, we, at, for a first descent, we'll kind of have a target exit point and we might even research the day before. We might even fix lines two miles down the, the stream. Uh, and if we can get to those ropes, we know we have an out. And then the X factor becomes, well, what's in the middle? Um, is there anything in there that's that's impassable or deadly, you know, if we come at it from the wrong approach? Wow. Have you ever been benighted in the canyon or have you always gotten out in the planned amount of time? Oh, no. We've been, I've been held up a couple of times, you know, mainly just due to water. We found a huge drop in, in the canyon midway that just took too much time. Um, so, yeah, we've spent, I've probably three times I've had unplanned divvy. My career, yeah. And you're dealing with, I mean, you're in water as well while you're doing, or were you able to stay dry overnight also? I mean, it's just so many other factors compared to being benighted on a cliff, you know? Yeah, you bet. And, and the good news is, is we're carrying some heavy packs, and in those heavy packs, we should be planned. I always like to joke around saying, if you're going to have an unplanned bevy, you should be, you should be able to have a three star experience, you know? <laughs> I like that. Lightweight alpine mentality. I'm talking about, hey, we're going to do a first descent, or we're going to go in here when conditions are, you know, other. And that being said, you can bring a little bivy sack, and you can bring some food, and someone can bring a stove, and team team gear can get split up. So if it's, if it's done right, it can actually be pretty fun. But to your point, you need to be able to get dry, get out of the stream bed, whatever, get out of the wind. So you'll, you'll want some decent survival skills if, if that's, you're into those kind of expedition-style routes. Right, right. I like that. If you're going to have an unplanned bivy, it might as well be a three-star experience. Well, that's what you're going to lay there. You, you know what I'm talking about. You'll lay there with your one-star experience thinking about how cool a little pack of M&Ms would be right now. 
Right, right. <laughs> it, it doesn't take much to improve morale in a situation yeah. like that. Right. You know, the old Jolly Rancher and a joint used to go a long ways on a big wall. Right. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is presented by Sterling Rope, who recognize that having gear that you can trust is part of the freedom to focus. But another huge piece is knowing what you're doing up there. And just like Darren had people that helped him throughout his career, I found my way into climbing with the help of a mentor. One of the most important things that we can do for each other, for this culture of climbing and for taking care of our climbing areas, is to remember the power of having a mentor. So whether or not you just started climbing last year or you've been climbing for 20 years, look to become a mentor or maybe seek one out. You know, it's not only going to help your climbing, it's going to bring you closer to the community. It's going to foster community. It's going to help take care of our climbing areas. And um, I just want to give a shout out for the power of of mentorship. And I hope you uh, have someone like that in your life. It's really powerful. When we left off, we were talking about canyoneering and the role Darren played in getting that to a place that was more accessible for more people in Southern California and also in Hawaii. He was making deals with an outdoor retailer called Sport Chile, where he was offering classes in canyoneering and using it to help sell ropes and devices he had developed for canyoneering. Soon enough though, like any good idea, REI, one of the largest outdoor retailers, started to do something similar by offering their own classes, but at a much cheaper rate. What I'm seeing in your story is is a constant theme of of reinvention, you know, from construction to firefighting to canyoneering to product design to guiding. And at this point, you've got this awesome thing going with Sport Chalet. You're doing all these guided trips throughout Southern California. REI comes in. They're undercutting the whole industry for that. And so you make a pivot to the entertainment industry. Had you had any experience or foothold or connection into the entertainment industry at this point? Or how did, how did you even know to look in that direction? Well, all I knew is that there was a little bit of rope rigging going on with shows like Fear Factor back in the day. But what it was is I had, we, because we were a guide service based in LA, we had started making friends and I had even hired a couple of part-time producers that would come help me belay they wanted to work with kids and do something fun on the weekend, so I, we'd hire them. Getting to know these producers, they started seeing our skills, and they'd say, man, you know, we ought to make a show out of you guys. And so initially, we started having producers coming to us saying, hey, let's, let's, let's do something. And nobody knew what that was, but these were like super junior little producers at the time. Right. Uh, but ultimately, we would... You know, we would get a phone call saying, hey, we want to do a rappel for a show, kind of like the one where we met. And so I've got this rope rescue thing. i got the background for developing product and systems for that. I've got the business piece. So going to Hollywood and saying, hey, man, I can raise and lower people. We can put together a team that can, that can build your dreams was, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit by the nature of just my background. Wow. It was like everything, what I've learned is everything that I've done has just kind of been grooming me for what I would do next. And I just have come to rely upon that, as scary as that is. I like Don't that. Don't get me wrong. I like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like you were, in some ways, 
in the right place at the right time with the right background to because it sounds like your phone just started ringing what i'm hearing is it's not like you started placing ads or like call you know cold calling a bunch of producers saying do you need rigging work i mean maybe you were doing that but it sounds like also you had just built up the right skills uh were in the right place at the right time and you were able to provide something that no one else could i'm looking at a, a, a list here i mean these are some of the, I don't watch TV, but I'm aware of these shows. These are some of the biggest shows on TV. Big Brother, Beastmasters, Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge, Cannonball USA, The Bachelor, American Grit, Paradise Run, shows all over the world. They've done shows for ABC, Fox, CBS, NBC, Disney, Hulu, Nat Geo, basically every major network. Jared and his team are there and brought in not just to engineer the rigs, but to do it all. So once it gets off the concept desk and goes to the construction drawing, it's ours, and we, uh, we invent that obstacle from the bottom up. Now, what happens, you know, being the design specialist because we, and being able to ensure our own work means that we design and fabricate and test and change and rebuild, package it for shipping, send it out, build it in the field, test it in the field, put lights and cameras on it, run it as a competition with cash prizes, so there's a insurance companies involved and standards and practices for fairness. It's like a live competition. Our obstacles have to hold up. And then we tear it all down and ship it again. So it's, it's, it's like a huge deal. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, I find your story so fascinating because I can relate to the the theme of, of reinvention, you know, where you're, what you're doing today is really just priming you for what's what's coming next. And what's coming next for Darren remains to be seen. A few years back, Darren was diagnosed with prostate cancer. So, in his latest pivot, he's focusing on healing and philanthropy. If you're staring at your belly button as a young man or woman to get your feet underneath you to try to get a leg up in this weird fucking world, and you learn some lessons along the way, one of them should be that the faster you can start giving back, the more rewards you're going to see And you may not understand the value of those rewards until you're later in life when you have cancer or when your career is in jeopardy or when something big is, when when you're faced with your own mortality, all of a sudden, and we've heard it time and time again, the car and the house and the view and all that, that doesn't fix the problem. It's your network of friends. It's your self-worth. It's your inner spirit and how well developed that is. And that's what tends to pull people together when they're in their dark moment. So that's Darren out there following his bliss and making gold out of whatever comes his way. I think the cool thing about it is that so many people benefit from the work he does on a whim, whether it's the programming they watch or maybe the training they receive or the canyon routes that they take or the gear they used to do it. A lot of people, whether they know it or not, have Darren to thank for something. And he, in turn, has David Lee Roth to thank. Really, though, I want to thank Darren for taking the time to talk with me. The Freedom to Focus podcast was produced by Kingspoke in Portland, Maine. If you or someone you know has a cool story about working and playing at height, please let us know. 
We want to hear about it. Email us at f2fstories at sterlingrope.com. I'm Kevin Jorgensen. Thanks a lot for listening. And by the way, have you guys listened to the thing where they isolate David Lee Roth's vocal track on Running With The Devil? Google it. You'll be glad you did. Trust me.